Hello. Welcome to Media Roots Radio. This is your host for today, Robbie Martin. At the beginning of this month, on April 3rd, it was announced that Red Bull Music Academy and Red Bull Radio were closing this year. The official statement put out by Red Bull was as follows. Quote, After 20 years of supporting artists worldwide with its music program in a rapidly changing world, Red Bull will maintain its purpose of providing a global platform to promote creativity, but it is changing the means of delivery. Red Bull will be moving away from a strongly centralized approach, will gradually phase out the existing structure, and will implement a new setup which empowers existing Red Bull country teams and utilizes local expertise. Red Bull will continue to explore new ways to support promising and cutting-edge artists, wherever they may be. End quote. The marketing company responsible for hatching the idea of Red Bull Music Academy for Red Bull that worked together with them for uh, around two decades uh, also put out their own statement about the closing of this branch of their company. But in both official statements, there's really no clear answer or explanation as to why they actually shuttered this. So today, what I decided to do is interview two different people who had two different viewpoints on what Red Bull Music Academy represented and what it means that it's closed. Now, when I say different viewpoints, um, they're really actually not that much different. Both people I'm interviewing come from the electronic music scene, specifically the weirder, more avant-garde end of the electronic music scene, usually referred to as experimental electronic music, sort of an umbrella term for anything you know, more on the left field or the weird end of electronic music. One of them is Michael Buchanan, a good friend of mine who I've known for many years. He plays under his own solo alias, Identity Theft. Him and I have been having this conversation just not on any podcasts for a long time. Just what it, what Red Bull Music Academy represents, what it means for the scene, and all that kind of stuff. Um, the ethical implications of it. We didn't have a particularly favorable view of it. I especially was very critical of it. Um, and as I'll read in a little bit as the intro to this podcast, uh, I was asked to write a critical piece about it uh, for a magazine, which I did. Um, and I ended up interviewing some other musicians for that as well. So that's going to be the first part of this podcast. And then the second hour of the podcast is an interview with Matt Dryhurst. You may have heard Matt's work via Holly Herndon. Holly Herndon is an electronic musician who's also on the weirder end of the spectrum, who's putting out a new album, Proto, on May 10th. Matt, her partner and collaborator, is a big part of that album as well, and her last two albums. Matt's recently been writing pieces for The Guardian. Um, he's been doing lectures about the state of the music industry, ways where artists can take back their autonomy and empower themselves. And he's got a lot of interesting points of view. But I guess the only difference between Michael and Matt, really, is that Matt has had a lot of uh, ties with Red Bull Music Academy over the years, either by playing shows curated by them. He's familiar with the founders of the Academy. So his perspective is going to be different in that regard. He'll have a much 
deeper understanding of the structure of what it did, how it worked. At the same time, he's not as critical of it as we are, but yet we all kind of mostly agree on the artificial nature of it and sort of the ethical conundrum that that poses. First, I'm going to play the interview with Michael Buchanan. In the second hour, I'm going to play this interview that I did with Matt Dryhurst. But first, I'm going to read to you part of this article that I wrote for this German magazine, Melody and Rhythm, um, about Red Bull Music Academy. So this is an article I wrote for German magazine, Melody and Rhythm, May 2017. I'll start reading. Some may remember how quickly the dance music genre, drum and bass, became appropriated by advertising firms. Jungle breaks became ubiquitous in all forms of product advertisements. Even what was known as drill and bass, an offshoot of jungle, was appropriated. In a Bank of America commercial, the tune Girl and Boy Song by Aphex Twin was used. And it was such a success that other banks like Wells Fargo made Girl Boy Song ripoffs using classical music riffs over stuttering sped-up breakbeats. Years later, Amon Tobin songs were being regularly heard in U.S. car commercials. There was no doubt corporations were taking an interest in avant-garde-leaning electronic music, but with little concern for the artists themselves, at best paying licensing fees to artists and labels for their already existing works. At worst, hiring teams to clone specific works. McDonald's used cold-cut Hextatic's natural rhythm as a template for an AV found sound tune constructed out of McDonald's sound effects, the relationship between cutting-edge avant-garde electronic music and corporations continued like this until the energy drink company Red Bull turned this paradigm upside down. Previously known for their association with adrenaline junkie Extreme Sports in the late 90s, they reached out to a German marketing firm, Yadastar, with the intention of implementing some method of fostering discourse about underground electronic music dance culture. With Red Bull's success in implementing their branding image, they felt another burgeoning world of culture, underground electronic dance music, could provide them with brand esteem few corporations would bother with. They called it the Red Bull Music Academy. The RBMA wouldn't just pay licensing fees to electronic musicians, they would create a system and a framework for them to thrive in, booking shows, curating their own festivals, starting a radio station, and even fostering education by hosting electronic musician lectures and courses. The campaign was a smashing success. Over the next 10 years, the brand Red Bull went from energy drink company to a top player and curator purveyor of underground dance and experimental music culture in over 60 countries. RBMA didn't primarily reach out to the most popular or successful producers most of the time. They combed the underground of electronic and experimental music. Their focus was new and hot rising stars in underground dance music culture, most of whom the general public didn't even know or care about. This wasn't the point, though, to reach the general public. It was to plant its flag in the same cultural location as institutions like The Wire magazine, Boiler Room, Resident Advisor, and Pitchfork. In this regard, the RBMA was incredibly successful in its stated goal. It didn't take long for RBMA to be regarded not just as a serious and important cultural space provided for artists, but also an important engine for culture itself. Other corporations have tried copying Red Bull's success, but without the finesse. General Electric hired found sound electronic musician Matthew Deere 
in 2014 to make an entire track out of their machinery and products. They charted his journey, collecting the sounds in a slick, expensive-looking video diary. The result? Other than a few dozen outlets like Gizmodo and Vice Motherboard parodying the GE press release, no one started talking about how creative GE was. In fact, in the end, it probably damaged Deere's reputation as a Banksy-esque political musician. The opposite was true for when RBMA interacted with an artist getting booked as a lecturer at the RBMA Fireside Chats. was almost as impactful as having your face on the cover of The Wire magazine. It didn't seem to matter much when it backfired, though. Occasionally, a hot new electronic musician would have almost nothing to say about their working process. Lectures were oftentimes filled with awkward pauses and sometimes unintentionally unleashing the emperor-has-no-clothes effect, reminiscent of Salem's infamous SXSW Fort Fader performance. On the surface, it did seem like Red Bull had pulled off the impossible, having a genuine crucial influence on the direction of underground music culture and placing its brand name in high esteem among not just dance music audiences, but the musicians and artists themselves. But what Red Bull had actually done was utilize their capital to construct an artificial cultural bubble, siphoning and capturing energy from an already existing engine and cutting-edge creativity. Other cultural curators had already paved the path RBMA walked, and in some instances, the institution brought out career music curators from other more credible institutions. A few writers who also worked for outlets like The Wire started to rib RBMA, sometimes lovingly, but at other times philosophically. Like Nathan Budzinski, who says, The marketing narratives laid down by the likes of Red Bull and similar have helped beckon forth an enveloping haze of meaningless positivity, creating a world that's happy yet contentless, adult but toothless. It does exactly what marketing gurus want it to do, tap into the same life-affirming energies that music relies on and sometimes creates, and then burrow into our emotional worlds, never to be forgotten, all in order to make us buy stuff. End quote. When speaking to artists and writers who work for RBMA, the feedback about what the institution represented for them was surprisingly positive, if a little repetitive. The most common refrain was that RBMA, quote, pays better than most places. But suddenly this positive attitude shifted when Red Bull CEO Dietrich Meitschwitz made some alarming comments about immigrants and Trump in an interview following his announcement of a Breitbart-style news outlet under the Red Bull umbrella. Beyond the dilemma of artists not wanting to be associated with a right-wing news outlet, the CEO's comments sparked new discussion on social media about the nature of RBMA itself. Jace Clayton, a.k.a. DJ Rupture, on radio station WDR, said these conversations about RBMA weren't happening regularly or soon enough. He said, When you put so much money into the underground, the musical niches, one weakens the criticism and discussion in advance, and that is scary. End quote. Jace saw that the power, size, and influence of the RBMA itself was causing a chilling effect inside of the scene, one that Professor Larissa Kingston Mann, a.k.a. DJ Ripley, felt as well. She described RBMA as being, quote, the only game in town in regards to the New York scene. She says, People I know and respect have hushed me for criticizing Red Bull. The bigger picture, she says, is awareness of how much you are deciding your level of participation in the, quote, 
colonial, colonialist capitalist framework. She goes on to say, I think it's more about the ethics of profiting off the culture, and that's just capitalism. When the conversation turned towards the RBMA's motives, she said, quote, they don't have to be transparent about their rationales. We don't know what their rationales are, end quote. DJ Rupture ascribed likely motivations of why an institution like RBMA would exist. She says, it stores, it saves all possible musical content. Such a thing never happens without ulterior motives, end quote. And according to a musician who wished to remain anonymous while meeting with the RBMA heads in Cologne for a business deal, they half-jokingly referred to themselves as Red Bull CIA. Was this sarcasm or a new and harmful way of profiting off of the underground? Somewhat harmful, says DJ Ripley. She says, it's very 21st century, gaming our interest, playing with algorithms to show us more things we're interested in. Capitalism has always had a very intimate side that involves regulating desire. I think Red Bull is very sophisticated at gathering data. Beyond the artistic data collection, DJ Ripley says, she's curious about the application process for the actual Music Academy. She goes on to say, they want people to fill out a 26-page survey with questions like, when was the last time you cried? It's really intimate and involves you talking about your knowledge of culture, and that's extremely valuable marketing information. Collect as much of this data as possible now and find a way to profit off of it later. Troublingly, Ripley wonders if all this data could be helping Red Bull optimize their marketing spend to the detriment of culture everywhere. That's as much as what they choose to fund as what they choose not to fund, she says. How powerful or subversive can it be if Red Bull doesn't find it threatening? But that's a point for self-reflection, end quote. As if, in the end, there is a more existential problem with the relationship, one of unconscious conformity and self-censorship. So that's the end of my article. Um, that was a little bit of a long, longer version of the article because it was limited by word count. Um, so I read a, an earlier draft there. First, I'm going to play the interview with um, my good pal, Michael Buchanan, uh, from the underground electronic music scene, to have a little discussion about Red Bull Music Academy and what it meant to us and what we think of it. And just as a side note, Michael will be performing with Jay Fields under the alias Abandoned Footwear at the upcoming Mutech SF Festival. And he'll be performing on May 5th at 1015 Folsom in San Francisco, along with Code 9, ARPANET, ARC Amnesia Scanner, and a bunch of other acts that I probably can't pronounce the names of. Uh, so definitely go check that out. Michael has just released an album of solo electronic music under his identity theft alias called The Wrong Side of History. It's a five-track vinyl release. Uh, it's also available on Bandcamp at identitytheft.bandcamp.com. So here's our chat. So how do I know you, Michael? Or yeah. were you, tell me a little do bit you? about your background. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, um, I'm a musician. Um, we've known each other a long time. I, I met you, Robbie, through our mutual friend who's no longer with us, uh, Wei Chang from Isolate Records, who released your work and some of my old project Nomo Ogo back, yes. back in like 2004, five. End of the Bush era. Yeah. But yeah, we've been buddies since then and uh, collaborated and stuff. And 
I guess we're both kind of, you know, part of the electronic music, specifically weird electronic music scene in the Bay uh, and West Coast in general, maybe. Um, And you've heard some of Michael's music as intro music to Media Roots episodes. Yeah, I I do music as Identity Theft. Yeah. Also play in a project called Abandoned Footwear. Why did you ask me to come talk to you about Red Bull? Music I asked you to come talk about Red Bull because because I've always thought this shit was really weird. But at the same time, I knew a lot of people who didn't think it was weird. And it's been going for so long, it basically became a a staple of the electronic music scene. Yeah. It's... I mean, it makes the Wire magazine and Pitchfork and all those other things almost seem like small in comparison. Yeah, I mean, it's it's been going on for a while. And uh, I remember I first probably heard about it maybe like 10 years ago or something like that and was kind of blown away by its uh its presence and then got really weirded out when people that i knew who were djs or electronic musicians were kind of like pretty accepting of it and pretty okay with it just generally like Mm -hmm. or maybe even sort of aspirationally kind of like wanting to do the music academy thing and Get sponsored get by sponsored them. Get sponsored by it or yeah. like, you know, have their show sponsored by it or whatever. So we should explain a little bit just up front what, what the hell it is actually because Red Bull's not that big of a brand in the in the big scheme of things. It's not like a brand you hear about a lot. But in the world that Michael and I come from, it's become like actually one of the biggest brand names <laughs> associated with the scene. I'm trying to think of another brand in general that was associated with like electronic music maybe like roland because of like the instruments or technics because of like the technics 1200s you know that every dj's oh like pioneer yeah, yeah like or like things like that, that actually make stuff yeah. that's like related to like dj or maybe some clothings like jinkos for ravers Jinko for sure, yeah yeah <laughs> i but i can't really think of many other like brand names that were directly associated with like rave culture or electronic music so, I mean, Red Bull pretty much filled, I feel like, a void in that regard where it knew really what to do to ingratiate itself. I would say, like, specifically, though, like, the transition from raves to clubs. Like, oh, yeah. That, that yeah. I mean... Well, explain that. All right. Well, like, raves were kind of illegal or quasi-legal, sketchy warehouse venues and stuff like that, you know, was kind of the foundation of techno music in this country and Europe as well. There used to be a lot more kind of quasi-legal raves, you know, here in the Bay Area and on the West Coast and stuff for various reasons, mostly because of overdoses or other legal things that happened. Mm -hmm. Electronic music kind of shifted more to like clubs and bars specifically. And I guess here that was more like probably, probably a little later than when it happened in Europe. Right. Like, I feel like Europe, it was like there was rave heyday in the early 90s. Mm -hmm. And then by the late 90s, it had mostly already kind of been allocated to like clubs and stuff like that with like occasional big raves. That's what it seems like. Yeah. As far as like, you know, the West Coast USA goes like, you know, there's still raves going on and stuff. But like, for the most part, a lot of things have shifted towards clubs and bar, you know, bars specifically there was a big crackdown i remember 
like in the early 2000s of a lot of raves the millennium like y2k kind of changed uh-huh. things i don't know 9/11, I was in, uh, everything changed after 9-11 yeah <laughs> i mean actually in a weird way that there was another thing that was kind of had a big impact probably on rave culture which was the operation web trip have we talked about this no before? I, I don't know about that so it was a dea operation that was done i think in like 99 maybe 2000 where they made all those research chemical websites that were like quite popular in the u.s for a while uh illegal all of a sudden yeah so they just like raided all of these places that were selling like there's a popular website called jlf poisonous non-consumables that sold like 2ci okay and, yeah 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 and they raided all those places and a lot of those people actually are i think some of those guys are still in jail now um so that probably had and then ketamine also went from a from a completely legal non-scheduled drug that you could buy on the internet to a schedule one or a schedule two, I think drug in like 1999. Yeah. All those things were kind of happening around the same time. Well, there was a lot of big ecstasy and psychedelic busts around 99 Mm -hmm. in the U S and that probably that ties into our last episode. I mean, yeah, completely. And, (laughs) and that probably ties in greatly to the sort of demise of the big rave era because like, those raves, they weren't selling Red Bull to make money. They weren't selling beer to make money. It was like, yeah, yeah. you know, these things were fueled economically by the drug trade, for yeah. better or for oh, worse. No, totally. Like, I mean, there was even the people who threw. I mean, the people who threw the parties were likely involved on some level too. I mean, like even when I was going to raves, it had already lightened up and was more, I think, more commercialized. They were more like the rave shops. Those are all closed now. Like, were you? Yeah. They were, you would go yeah, buy like, records. Like, record stores that sold, like, DJ records and DJ, like, headphones and shit like that. But also, you could buy tickets to big raves that were, like, permitted at, like, legitimate, yeah. you know, arenas and coliseums and big, giant venues. And around here, a lot, and, like, towards especially the late 90s, a lot of the raves, the bigger ones were just thrown by the shops themselves, like, their own. Like brand skills or whatever. skills like are yeah, yeah, yeah. frequency eight was one of the trance ones i remember i never the, really went to like that size of a rave you know yeah, like yeah i grew up in anchorage and like we had raves you know the first rave i went to when i was like 14 or something was like in a weird military bunker outside of town mm-hmm. and probably like every teenager in town was at it and it was just a fucking big open market for drugs, basically. Like, yeah. the whole thing was completely sketchy. And, and you in know, Anchorage, pretty... that was probably like a better opportunity to find any drugs at yeah. a rave, right? Oh, than yeah. Any I mean, any, you know, place. any psychedelics that were in the entire state were probably all in, under that one roof yeah. that night, yeah. you know? <laughs> that was part of the rave culture in the 90s, was it was sketchy, sketchy as fuck. You know, there was all kinds of sketchy mm-hmm. characters out there and ver- doing various things. And, you know, that was kind of like the mystique of it as well in a way there was sort of like a this vibe of like uh outlaw culture or whatever Mm -hmm. i mean it does yeah like now that i think about it more it does seem like the late 90s there was so many crackdowns in different ways by law enforcement oh yeah i knew of some you know secondhand i knew of some crews where the entire crew was arrested Mm -hmm. for you know like Uh in some coordinated federal raid or whatever like yeah multi-state kind of thing and there was a lot of undercover probably there was a lot of organized operations that were dealing with this stuff i mean mm-hmm. on the west coast like 
there was a lot of psychedelics out there. Uh, definitely like a lot of acid yeah. um, going around at that time. And, you know, I think that's just a completely different thing than what it kind of morphed into. You know, same drugs maybe, but like at like a bar or something. This is crazy. I just remembered this while we were talking. Do you remember William Picard, LSD manufacturer in Kansas? Missile silo. Oh yes, yeah, that was a big that was a big bust too, in, right? In two thousand, yeah, him and his partner were busted. The whole operation was shuttered. The DEA bragged at the time that it led to a ninety five percent drop. This is from Wikipedia in the availability of LSD in the U.S. in the two years following. So, I mean, all these things coming together, it makes sense why a company like Red Bull maybe saw an opportunity. And I don't know if this was their strategy, but it does seem like that transition from electronic music from rave to clubs, probably in large part enabled by a lot of these crackdowns. And apparently they started in 1998. That makes sense. Like when you first heard about it, what, like, did you, did you know that it was like an actual like thing you could enroll in or like what the hell I didn't, was your impression of it? I never, I still don't really know too much about it, to be honest. I mean, yeah. um, from what I understand, it was like a lecture series. Yeah. And then also maybe some kind of uh sponsorship type thing where artists could work on stuff with some sort of under that sort of uh-huh. banner, you know, they, they would get some funding or something like this. And then events, like they would present events as uh, RBMA branded events or whatever. And when did you first start noticing that, like the events? What time period was that? Must have been, yeah, like 2008, 2009, like 10, 10 years ago mm-hmm. for me. Just being in like the small world of electronic music we're in, it seems like it really had a profound impact just on our our world specifically. Yeah, I mean, which is which is unusual. Promoting stuff that was a little bit more weird or like yeah, yeah. avant-garde. And even a lot of people we knew playing shows that were associated or sponsored by Red Bull. Yeah. Which started to like actually touch the Bay Area. Apparently, actually they really have influenced LA and New York way more than here. Yeah. Too. Well, that would that So would we're lucky, sense. I guess, that you know, they haven't <laughs> like sponsored the all the main shows here because apparently like in New York all, a lot of the main electronic music shows are just always co-sponsored by them yeah in some capacity huh I mean I guess tell me also like were your impressions negative or positive about it I uh, always just thought it was a little tacky you know it yeah. just seemed tacky to like have a fucking soft drink logo in front of you or above you while you're playing abstract techno or whatever the fuck like it just it just didn't yeah. really match up too much but it was so pervasive and so like self-perpetuating you know it just was always around like mm-hmm. rbma you just sort of get used to it after a while which, always around how how did you mainly remember hearing about it like internet or yeah like internet stuff like you know like lectures or like workshop things that were on youtube or whatever or articles or you know it just gets mentioned a lot like rbma just sort of in the same breath as festivals like european festivals it had kind of a european festival vibe of serious electronic mm-hmm. music like stuff you should ctm yeah or... stuff you should pay attention yeah. to if you're interested in like serious electronic mm-hmm. music culture or whatever like you would 
be aware of all the artists that they're aware of. So would it, it surprise like, you to know that they actually sponsor Mutech? No, not at all. Yeah. Yeah. No, that's right in line with the type of event that they would Of be. course. Yeah. Yeah. And Mutech, I mean as a like a regular series of events is existed as like kind of an institution long before Rebel Music Academy got involved. Yeah. So it's not like it was ever really in competition so to speak with all these other things you're talking about or like even like the wire magazine which has a lot of crossover with the stuff that's covered or focused on and and also a lot of the writers and people who work for those places also ended up working for Red Bull Music Academy yeah which is which is interesting cuz like you would think some of these places would be a little bit more territorial about i mean that's what i would think like though especially people who work for the wire would be like who the fuck are the Red Bull Music Academy? Who do they think they well, are? Well, yeah, I mean, but thing. they've been around since 98, you said. So, yeah. like, they've they've done the, the time, uh-huh. you know, they've paid their dues, so to speak, by just being around long enough. People forget that they're a soft drink company and not a creative think tank or something. Just by their longevity, you know, they sort of established themselves in these scenes, you know, by just mm-hmm. kind of sticking it out. It makes sense. I guess I just, what actually made them have the decision to plug into something that's more near and dear to us, which is like underground, weird electronic music. It's like market research. It's like mm-hmm. they're, it's a marketing thing. So I would imagine that they probably were thinking along the lines of just sort of embedding themselves in the culture kind of long term. Sort of, you know, it's more of a long-term strategy, sort of aligning themselves with a certain type of market, Mm -hmm. target, you know, age range, whatever, like certain income bracket or whatever, like, and kind of just going along for the ride, you know, just sort of putting themselves in that position. They're not pushing Red Bull on you every second, but just, just the fact that they're around and their name is Red Bull, it's like... It gives some cachet to the brand. It establishes it as not just a fucking gross tasting fizzy drink that has tons of caffeine in it. It's also uh, a lifestyle or like a aesthetic. Yeah. But do you think it's it's just a, an example of another corporation being really savvy and trying to embed itself on into the cutting edge of something, of culture in some way? Or do you think it's different than that? Yeah, I mean, it's... Because I can't think of really very many other examples of a corporation being that savvy. I don't know. To me, it seems like really, really smart, whoever thought of doing it. Yeah, it's it's crass, but like also, you know, corporations are all different. They all have their own kind of personalities, you know? So yeah. like the personality of Red Bull, I guess, lends itself well to like nightclub. I mean, yeah, it's, a, it's an energy drink. You can drink it instead of taking Molly... Mm-hmm. You can drink a Red Bull and dance all night to some shitty techno. So I wrote an article about two years ago for this German magazine called Melody and Rhythm. They asked me to do a critical piece on it because there was sort of outrage at the time that they asked me to write this article about the CEO of the company saying that he understood Trump's approach to illegal immigration and that he was going to open up like a Breitbart style TV channel. He didn't, he didn't say it was going to be like a right wing TV channel, but he basically said like implied that the liberal media is like 
too powerful or whatever and he wants to like create like an alternative the head of red bull the head of red bull he only owns 49 percent of the company apparently now so this was like an outrage at the time i think i remember hearing something about this yeah so a lot of people from this scene this was the first time i remembered ever really anybody from the scene sort of acting outrage at anything red bull related right you know because up until that point you were one of the only people i talked to you know besides a few other people we know that shares our opinion on just the tackiness in general about it and just the sort of the oddness of it. Yeah, so this this marketing company, apparently they're a German company called Yadastar, came Yadastar. to Red Bull and sort of gave them this idea. The reason it's called the Red Bull Music Academy is because there is actually a program that you can enroll in where tens of thousands of different people have enrolled in and very few people actually get selected where they give you studio time. Yeah. They fund like the making of your projects or whatever. And apparently in some instances, a lot of unsigned or underground artists they've plucked out and sponsored. Now that's what I've, that's what I've heard. I don't really know any specific examples of that. Like, yeah. Like um, what, what are the albums that were created at the Red Bull Music Academy? That's a good question. Like, like that's a good question. So I did a, a search for RBMA, which is the initials for Red Bull Music Academy on Twitter uh, after it closed because I hear so little criticism or anything about this even existing in the scene. And I just wanted to see what people were saying about it after it closed. And not really surprising that 90% of the the tweets that I found are positive. Very, very positive. So here's one from Hudson Mohawk who um, appeared in Twin Peaks Season 3. Oh, no shit. <laughs> he's, a, he's assigned to Warp Records. He tweets, Can't express my gratitude for RBMA and Yadastar for everything they've done over the years in supporting and fostering so much talent and culture from ground up and exposing me and countless others to tons of cool shit we'd never have come across otherwise. End of an era, but onwards and upwards for them. So he's, you know, he's sort of mourning the loss. He makes it sound like it was this kind of like a, a really important, you know, cultural beacon in some way. R.I.P. R.B.M.A. <laughs> and he says also, maybe the only truly successful example of a corporate sponsored music cultural partnership that actually realized its full potential and didn't turn corny maintained highly curated quality output and gave much more back than it took. Thanks for everything, RBMA. So that's Hudson mm. Mohawk from four days ago. I'm just a little surprised to hear someone give it that kind of unanimous praise. He's probably on some level was sponsored by them. I'm sure he's even done a lecture. If I search his name right now, he's probably on there. Yeah, it's, it's just strange. Here's someone else named Trevor Jackson on Twitter saying, whine as much as you want about brand association with music, but the end of RBMA is a sad day for all upcoming musicians and established ones. For me, the only corporate concept I experienced that actually worked actively contributing to the culture way more than it took from it. Same thing, re yeah. repeating, yeah. So I guess let's explore that concept. Why would Red Bull do this if they weren't just throwing the energy drink in everybody's faces at these parties it doesn't really even seem like they were you know that's not even my complaint with it can this could this possibly be true well it's pretty naive for people to think that it's like they were doing it just out of the kindness of their hearts you know 
that they're of just course. like that, you know, they, they don't give a fuck about money, you know, they just, they just care about the culture, right? Uh, that's, that's naive as hell, but like, so clearly they were getting something out of it, but it's like, what do they get? I mean, they're still around, like their brand has had longevity, which is more than I can say for like a load of other energy drinks that have come and gone yeah. in the interim years. I mean, they've, they've established themselves at least as like a club beverage any bar in san francisco that has electronic music definitely has red bull they might not have too many other mixers i mean they're more likely to have red bull than rockstar or something yeah else. i mean yeah whatever the much. clone is of red bull i mean they also were associated with extreme sports too i mean that was something they dove into before i forgot about that yeah i forgot about that too yeah like bmx BMXing, racing and all that like, shit yeah. so they're really associated with that there's like full you know tons of they're sponsoring like tons of those whoever participate in those sports yeah i i would be curious as to like how big the music branch of their sort of sponsorship stuff was in comparison to that because it seems like a big deal for people in like electronic music scene like rbma closing but for them it might just be a very small part of their whole operation you know let's even just look at some of the stats if you go to youtube their channel it doesn't even really seem like, I mean, and I don't know if this is just how re actually relatively small the electronic music scene is, but it doesn't even seem like their lecture videos really have that many views total. Their channel, Red Bull Music Academy on YouTube, it surprisingly only has 120,000 subscribers, hmm. which I don't know. I would just expect them to have like at least a couple of million. Yeah, I don't that's, that's kind of weird. Yeah. In terms of their one of their most popular things that they actually did... They contributed, you know, what most people can consider, I guess, their positive contributions, their lectures. I've definitely watched a few of their lectures. and Yeah, I have too. Certainly enjoyed a few of them. I mean, there's, there's tons of musicians who've been lectured on it that are people that I like. Yeah. Some of them are an hour long. And they're cool. I mean, some of them, them are like really awkward and weird, like <laughs> where they interview people who've like only released like one album and up and coming electronic musician doing an hour-long lecture can sometimes be a little rough <laughs> to watch. Yeah. But I'm looking at a bunch of different videos here, and most of them, they really only get up to like 10,000 views on the high end. So, Yeah, no, no wonder they folded. <laughs> so, I mean, did they put in more into the scene than they got back? Like, what positive impact can we say that they had, if any? I mean... It is true if they, you know, were injecting money into experimental electronic music that otherwise has like zero market value, like, you know, they very well could have sustained some artists that might have called it quits otherwise. Um, doing lectures, you know, that's like, that's kind of cool because it elevates things to like more intellectual discourse rather than just club nights and stuff. Like, there's good things to be said about that. I'm not too familiar with other shit that they've done other than just sponsor shows. And to me, like Red Bull sponsoring a show is like the same as like Budweiser sponsoring a show or whatever. It's just like whether or not you like the artists and the venue, you know, is kind of what it comes down to. Like, yeah, it doesn't matter who fucking is sponsoring it because like you're not going because of the sponsor. They just happen to be, you know fronting the money for the advertising or whatever. I mean, I think on some level it's different than that because they have so many aspects of the Red Bull Music Academy is like curating the same scene. So like 
they'll pick the lineup, you know, for the show. Like other brand, you know, like Budweiser, if they sponsor a show, they're not necessarily picking the lineup. Oh, right. Yeah. Well, yeah. The, the, well, the curation aspect is like the whole thing, kind of. I mean, that's, yeah. And they'll document the event and they'll have like a musician who's playing it do a lecture and release, you know, before the show or something. Yeah. They develop relationships with yeah. like artists and labels and stuff like that. But yeah, I mean, I think that's a good point, though. Like the curation aspect of it is kind of like, really what they're doing like you know they're by curating something you're sort of tying your brand to it in a way that's different than just like boosting something or like promoting something else it's sort of like you become an active participant in the culture but not in like a you know like ground bottom up sort of way more in a top-down sort of like uh you know marketing sort of way like thinking about it in terms of you know market strategies or what you know when you're curating a lineup it's like what artists you know is it worth taking a risk on which ones are not worth taking a risk on Mm -hmm. the sort of the more existential question is how experimental how radical how cutting edge and crazy could an artist be if red bull is willing to take the risk to sponsor them yeah. We're, if we're just talking in terms of the content of the music or the audio or whatever experimental music it is, it definitely would have to fit in a certain realm. You know, it couldn't be like too subversive, even just on an audio level. Well, that that's an interesting point, because if you think about like techno and like electronic music in general, overall, like a lot of it's kind of like abstract aesthetically, like there's not yeah. a lot of real strong aesthetics like it could be rebranded in a different way it could be kind of approximated or like funneled into various things like you know um it's amorphous you know or like a little bit more abstract or whatever kind of like formalist sort of playing around with sound and colors and you know this abstract sort of more expressionist art form can then be sort of like manipulated into being part of a marketing campaign pretty easily you know? mm-hmm. like it's it's malleable more so than something maybe with like lyrics that could be like political or like mm-hmm. a strong message you know like hip-hop or rock or you know other mm-hmm. other types of music that maybe have more of a and they also have sponsored stuff like that they just happen to be in it so i this is something that i might be ignorant on is i wonder if the hip-hop that they have sponsored has already sort of broken through the ceiling in a way where they're already sort of safe enough to be like in popular culture a little bit already, or if they've ever actually lifted up any, any artists with like controversial lyrics from the ground up. Yeah. I don't, I don't know much about that for them, but you're right that, you know, electronic music in general, it is safer in, in the regard that it is amorphous and you could just sort of associate it without much risk. Yeah. But then when it comes to like the artists themselves, I guess if the personalities are too radical, I mean, I, I guess it depends. I mean, like someone like DJ Rupture, Jace Clayton, he wrote a, a sort of a negative chapter in one of his books about Red Bull Music Academy. And I wonder if he's sort of, you know, I mean, I don't think he's like blackballed or anything. I would imagine, yeah, it's probably a bit more of a... um yeah, limited scope of dialogue if you're giving a lecture for RBMA. I, but you know, 
I haven't watched too many of them, so I couldn't say for sure. But yeah, and I'm sure. I mean, I'm sure there's examples of artists, and I can't name any who are like made a cracked a joke or made you know some kind of knock on the idea of what the institution is. I mean, I think it's just so obviously tacky in certain ways that I would be surprised if somebody during a lecture didn't say some, make a joke about right. it. Right. It's the normalization though that is the the creepy part for me is just the creeping norm like normalization of the logo specifically like in a dark club room when there's like loud kind of ominous music playing with no like real context other than just a giant glowing Red Bull logo. It's just sort of like a little disconcerting that everything is kind of under that flag, even if it's like not on everybody's mind, it's still kind of like subconsciously there, you know? And yeah, there's a weird structure to it all too, because it feels like even though in some ways on all the people involved seem to agree that it was done respectfully, they paid people for the most part on time better than most of the other places they work for. But there's this weird sort of poaching aspect to it too, where it's like, I remember when I went to Japan they were heavily marketed and promoted there, like all all the subway stations. Um, I think I don't remember which part of Japan it was in, but they had posters up everywhere in the subway. They were these these really great lineups of like a bunch of artists I would go want to see a show of, like Luke Vibert, um, a guy who you know this Japanese electronic artist named um, Kohei who put a, a a track on one of the record label records compilations was on it. Uh, Holly Herndon was on the lineup, and I was just thinking. These are all people you would sort of read about, like the Wire magazine or other smaller things, and they've they're taking all these people and they're basically lifting them up to a level that they would have never really been, or just given an opportunity, you know, play, like paying for these shows, funding yeah. these these big these bigger shows. So in a in that way, it does create a permanent it it, it in indentation in the scene space. Not not a gravitational pull, but like if we're just talking about it, like a physical space, there t- that takes up a lot of space. Yeah, or organizing shows that otherwise would never happen on the scale that they happen. Yeah, like that makes an impact, you know, mm-hmm. and like you and go good to- ones that are that people want to see yeah. too, like that are cleverly curated, um, and that's the thing that I think differentiates it and also makes it, I guess, people so sad that it's gone is it had such a big impact yeah yeah and at a time when there was no money being doled out for Mm -hmm. experimental artists or you know like left of center kind of stuff i could see it being viewed in retrospect as being a beacon of yeah artistic freedom or something like this but it's uh it's a little grim i don't know well, that's, I mean, that's one of the things I thought, too, that in retrospect, it is going to be remembered as as this important thing, this important era. So if we want to t- talk about getting less out of the scene than they put in or whatever, I mean, what? how many other brands do you know of besides maybe Coca-Cola that achieved the sort of, like, it's part, they're part of history. Like, that's, that's pretty hard to achieve as a brand in general, yeah. I think. Yeah, yeah. And just here's another comment by a guy named, um, in my Twitter search, Joseph Mackertick. And these are probably all musicians, and I'm kind of like out of it these days. So, you know, do you recognize that name? No. Is that a musician, you know? Okay. So he says, I loved RBMA. 
And I love wealthy brands paying for smart, relatively niche stuff without expecting it to create profit. But it is worrying how quickly these things get kiboshed once the principal revenue generator hits even the smallest rocky patch. Well, that's, yeah, that's an interesting point because of it makes me think of the recent SoundCloud sort of scare where everybody was like, oh shit, SoundCloud's going away. There goes everything I wrote, all the music I released in 2005 to 2015 or whatever, you know, the sort of disappearance of these like big platforms for sharing stuff feels like a death or something like this. People get attached in ways that they didn't know about because yeah, they don't have their own network. It makes me think of like, okay, how was, you know, culture disseminated in the rave days, like underground raves and stuff like that. That makes me think about like zines, Mm -hmm. you know, and early web pages and mailing lists, like all of which were like non corporate in structure, like, you know, to, to their detriment in a way because they're no longer around, but like the, the sort of platform thing, like, you know, the Facebook model, the Google model, you know, all these corporations that now control everything, like their, their model is, has destroyed the independent website. Yeah. It's just a completely different playing field now. Thinking about Iron Feather Journal, which is like a rave zine, hacker zine Mm -hmm. in from Colorado, I think in the late nineties that I was sort of familiar with. And for like the spiral tribe, like spaz contingent kind of free techno underground rave thing that I was kind of a part of, that was like a big organizing factor. You know, it was like this zine of all this, you know, stuff that was exactly what I was into, like, you know, hacking, cyberculture uh-huh. kind of stuff, like weird esoteric shit, and then just like record reviews and stuff uh-huh. like that. To me, that's like a hundred times better than like the wire or what, you know, whatever, yeah. like all these like random ones now, you know, like, you know, those, those times are gone. Um, reflecting on that though, like if people are feeling nostalgic or like upset that these big platforms are vanishing, it's like, well, that's a great time to like start working on something more grassroots, you know, that might last a little longer or not be as, as fickle, you know, as some of these yeah. corporations. So one of the obvious negative things seem to be the d- dependence on it if people actually genuinely loved it as some kind of cultural institution that was creating all this exciting content and, you know, places for people to play opportunities for people to perform. Then when it's, once it's taken away, a lot of those same, I guess, writers and artists who were dependent on it, you know, they're going to have to find other work now. So this guy from Twitter uh, under the handle first cut says, so RBMA has announced its intention to close. One of the most telling reactions to its imminent end comes from Eric Coulter, who questions where many underground artists will get financial support from. Eric Cloiter says, It's important to point out that a lot of the very underground, very small, very unknown artists, scenes and music everyone is frothing over for the last 10 years has come from RBMA, taking serious chances and presenting the unknown on a massive stage. <laughs> I mean, that's, that's a really like high that's a, praise. That's a, that's a bold statement. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I mean, and I've statement. actually, I had arguments with people on this, this forum, two guys who were techno DJs once where they were just like, techno would be dead if it wasn't for RBMA. They've single-handedly resurrected it. Like we're so thankful. More reason, more reason to hate them then, right? <laughs> yeah, I mean, yeah. I mean, it's just so, but it's just so weird. 
Yeah, I I don't know about that. It, it's probably bullshit. But that's, just, that sounds like some good marketing. Yeah, anyways, it is though. I mean, that, <laughs> but I mean, that's the thing. It's like this many people that I know have so many good things to say about it. Now I'm trying to find the some of the negative comments that I remember seeing on on Twitter. I think the the, the tackiness. Like, you know, people kind of are implicitly aware of the tackiness of the brand and the sort of incongruousness. I think about this from the lens of like punk rock and stuff like that, like punk scene. It's like, you know, there's kind of a code of ethics about like selling out and like Mm -hmm. branding or aligning yourself with brands is like kind of like fucking lame for the most part. I don't don't Mm -hmm. know. It's like people don't really let that shit fly, at least not in like underground punk scene or whatever. Mm -hmm. Um, But techno in the U S you know, electronic music doesn't really have that sort of political thrust. You know, people are kind of like mercenary and to a certain extent that's, you know, that that makes sense. I think it registered as tacky for a lot of people, whether they could rationalize it or not, you know, like even if they liked what Red Bull did, Mm -hmm. like Red Bull music Academy was doing or whatever, they still considered it pretty tacky to like of course. have to do. And I'm probably 90% of people who took a paycheck from RBMA were kind of cringing that they were, you know, associating yeah. with this like fucking soft drink company. But I mean, especially at first, money, yeah, yeah, money talks like, you know, I don't think I would have necessarily turned down a check from Red Bull Music Academy if they had offered me one. But I mean, well, this, based on some of the stuff they've covered, like I had a weird experience where um, Soat, got a big article written about him in RBMA, the website for like a performance he did at the CTM festival, like right when I put out a a release of his on my label. And it was just like very, a very strange experience for me because before that he maybe only had like a couple paragraph article about him in the wire and some other press. It was my first realization that people who were working there were like actually people really plugged in. They weren't just like corporate robots. They were actually like real people who new shit yeah i mean marketing people can be into cool cultural things too but they they ruin them (laughs) that's kind of like yeah that's that's the negative side of it i guess is they existed for 20 years that's that's a pretty long time to like develop relationships and Mm -hmm. whatnot i mean they got all the way through the entire scene like i mean that's and they became an appendage of it initially and then they became a huge giant part of it and i'm just talking about electronic music specifically well okay red bull is still a company yeah and yada star is still a company Mm -hmm. but red bull music academy is no longer a thing yeah their collaboration has has ended Mm -hmm. but i mean what's next i'd be curious to know like what yada star is going to Mm -hmm. turn into or you know put their attention they're going to consult next yeah that's that's a pretty big uh i mean it might just be a changing of the guard in a way, you know, because there, you know, it's it's a market. I'm I'm sure that they, it wasn't like they were doing it as a charity, you know what I mean? Like, all the people they had to pay and everything, yeah, that's a lot of money. But it's like they also were like booking shows and stuff like that, you know? Yeah, they brought um, a, I in the article I wrote for this German magazine, they brought over a South African DJ who was doing this like obscure music that only a few people are writing about, named DJ Lag. They like paid for his first show out here, mm-hmm. so they did like crazy shit like that that like really made people respect them, 
but they probably lost money on on some. Well, yeah, shows, I mean, right? I'm sure that they didn't. And so, but like, it wasn't about making money in the short term, or even I guess over a two decade. So that's I think why people have the impression that they put more into the scene than they got back. But I keep thinking that. But that's if you just think about it as like an independent uh, like entity, not uh, associated with Red Bull, like the soda company. Exactly, yeah. Like the soda company's good. Like they're mm-hmm. not, they're not hurting. You know, they're not yeah. like they're they're selling drinks. I mean, fuck. Like okay, like how much does a Red Bull cost? <laughs> like, like five a bucks. Can, or like something. five bucks yeah. a can. It's expensive like, as fuck. They're fucking. I mean, how much are they making per can? You know what I mean? Yeah, like yeah. on that shit. That's like selling beverages like in cans. Like. Mm-hmm. They're making hand over fist, like lots and, of money. Like, and I'm sure that they want to be doing it for like centuries. You know, they're not like thinking. I mean, centuries. Yeah. I mean, yeah. why not? Like, look at Coca Cola. I mean, if we want to compare it to another or Pepsi, like they're gonna be, you know, they're gonna be around for long after we're dead. So it's just, it's just interesting that they've embed, they've imprinted themselves into history in a way that I just don't think any of their companies have. Yeah, I guess the downside of rbma closing is that we'll never know what kind of six shows that they'd be sponsoring 300 years in the future you know <laughs> or but but like any other corporation though will could pick up the same concept and run with it if they see what rbma did as like some kind of really useful thing for their own brand yeah and all that data that they collected too that was another thing that came up in my article was the submission forms so they've they accepted very few actual like applicants into their academy and probably tens of thousands of people sent submission forms that were these giant like 40 page long you know things Hmm. all about you as a dj or an electronic musician and um someone who went through the process uh dj ripley was telling me that one of the questions was when was the last time you cried and stuff like that whoa yeah, that's and even that's like a sexual little, questions. Little personal. And stuff. It's a company that's taking all this data. Well, it's like extended market research. Yeah, so you just have to wonder where you know what they can do with that data now. Like now they just just like boop, we have basically the entire scene and the entire network, all the key players, the tastemakers. Yeah, that probably that's, all went right in the trash. You think so? <laughs> yeah, you I don't, don't think that's I even valuable to anyone. I doubt it. Music? That seems like just like a cheap attempt at market research, but really? I, I don't know. Maybe, maybe. I mean, but yeah, maybe in the bigger scheme of things, I mean, just looking at their stats on YouTube, it's 10,000 views on their lecture videos. Maybe it's, maybe it really, it didn't have that much of an impact. Well, maybe overall. they, maybe they were predominantly bigger before YouTube was a thing. I mean, they're, they've been around 20 years. Yeah. That's also, that's kind of another point is like, is like, you know, Okay, maybe their target market has aged out of their that particular brand association. You know what I mean? Like uh-huh. that's maybe if they're not actively reaching a younger market and the people who grew up with RBMA are now pushing 40, it's like they're not really clubbing as much. They're less of a market maybe. I I don't know. Like yeah, I mean, everybody seems to be saying that it's because of they ran out of money or they just didn't couldn't fit into their budget. But let me just read a few negative comments I saw. So this guy named TRBLW Dreams on Twitter says, "Useful for what? It was a biased organization promoting artists who did not need the spotlight to begin with, as they were already on the rise. 
Meanwhile, true innovators were constantly turned down. Fuck RBMA. That sounds like he got his application rejected right there. <laughs> so that's the thing. I mean, do you think that people... Salty. It seems like there's just so much positivity about it that I'm just wondering if, if people who criticize it will just all come off as seeming bitter. Like they're not a part of a... Just of like being a the, hater. The cool kids yeah. club. Don't be a hater. I mean, there is an argument to be made that this is the more profit-driven, you know, a corporation getting involved in this stuff, the more just status quo that it becomes as well. Yeah. I mean, not to say that there's electronic music is that radical, but it could be. It has the potential to be, I guess. Yeah, but that's kind of like what I was saying before. It's like more abstract and malleable as like yeah. a, as a as an art form, it's like very pliable to like fit whatever type of agenda. And that's got to be appealing you know, from a marketing standpoint, it's not too aggressive. It's not too mm-hmm. political, especially maybe like ambient music, you know, it could be kind of just background like to whatever, you know, mm-hmm. but it, it, it does seem like, you know, the responses overall being positive, it just sort of points to like the current zeitgeist things have kind of moved into more of a corporate feudal model of like, <laughs> you know, proximity to large corporations is like the only correct ethical objective is to sort of align yourself with these large centers of power. Yeah. I only found one kind of semi-critical piece about them since they closed. It's a pretty balanced article. Whoever wrote it really must've been following sort of their impact for a long time. Um, It's from the quietest and I'll just read a section from it. While RBMA had a life-changing impact on many of the artists who participated in it directly, perhaps its more profound effect has been on the much larger number who've watched it from afar. Red Bull's financial backing means that they had the resources required to film all their lectures, archive them thoughtfully, and publish them online, creating a vast, free repository of creative knowledge and insight. RBMA also grew to include an online writing strand focused on extensive long reads on the history and meaning of underground music and an online radio station giving exposure to new artists. In this, RBMA came closer than most to realizing the best of what a brand-fueled music platform could achieve. It's clear that its staff and contributors care deeply about the creative cultures fostered within it light-touch branding, and funding divorced from click rates or advertising imperatives enabled that culture to exist as an end to itself rather than being circumscribed by an immediate need to sell energy drinks. Former participants have spoken about the holistic nature of Red Bull's support, from visas to networking in an industry which can often feel like a closed shop. Their work to establish meaningful roots in host cities suggested a practical commitment to community building which might embarrass several of their peers. And yet, despite all this, it's impossible to untangle RBMA's positives from the complexities of brand-funded platforms which it also undeniably embodied. More obvious is the decision to close it. However gentle Red Bull's advertising may have been on the surface, it's self-evident that those holding the purse strings 
would have expected a meaningful return on each substantial investment. RBMA's vast trove of learning and experience may have functioned as a public good, but it was not incorporated or owned as one, ultimately. If and when it no longer made financial sense to Red Bull's owners for it to exist, then its importance to a wider community of artists and listeners could never have been enough to save it. In this, RBMA reveals the uncomfortable truth that many of the most influential nodes in our collective network of globalized underground music, whatever news sites subsidized by property developers or streaming platforms funded by venture capital, rely not only on the creative communities who provide their content and create their value, but also on the continued indulgence of wealthy benefactors whose priorities can and will change. In Red Bull's case, an expectation of the eternal goodwill of CEO and owner Dietrich Meitschwitz might be viewed as optimistic, given his widely publicized and noxiously reactionary political views. And then it also goes to say, Alongside this, there's also a more hypothetical question of lost opportunities and competition over access to audiences. Through the weight of its funding, RBMA was able to achieve things that other content platforms and music publishers simply couldn't afford to. This created beautiful, unique experiences, but also by definition distorted the space around itself. If RBMA hadn't existed, hadn't been able to disrupt the market in this way, it's possible to imagine alternative platforms which might have achieved some of the same goals in more sustainable forms. Maybe without brands taking up that space, we'd see more room for existing decentralized models to grow. Artists eschewing traditional PR-led approaches in favor of self-releasing, setting up their own labels, and working more directly with the communities of listeners around them. I think those are really good points, you know? We but just I mean, don't these know. beautiful experiences, I mean, I didn't experience any of those. I, I never actually went to any of the shows themselves. I mean, they didn't really touch the Bay Area that strongly and i mean at least the show landscape more new york and la and you're you're i always thought of it as a european thing and i guess in japan too it's pretty big out there it seemed like it was huh so but i guess for other people i'm not gonna shit on their experiences like if if these people had beautiful experiences these shows then i can believe that hey you drink enough red bull yeah you you can have a beautiful experience too (laughs) yeah it gives you wings i mean yeah all that taurine it's pretty beautiful all that bull semen yeah, I it's I guess I don't really know what purpose that type of centralization really serves culturally. Uh-huh. Yeah. To me culture is all about sort of like many things happening all over the place at yeah. the same time, like divergent like strains of culture popping up all over the place and having their own regional flavor. Yeah. When you I mean consolidate all that into one thing like Red Bull Music Academy did and like whatever RA do in boiler room, you know, when you brand something like that, something so broad as like music culture, you're kind of, I don't know, doing a disservice to culture in a, in a way, I would say. I mean, I think it's better for things to be more disparate and spread out and to take more work to maybe find. And, you know, maybe that means things are less supported uh, in a certain way people traveled around and played a lot of music before red bull music academy it was not it's a mixed thing all like all told because there is a sort of economic logic to it in this era that that makes it missed you know it's like it's something that 
supported people that would not have gotten support otherwise, it's pretty hard to say that that's like a, a good thing that it's gone, you know, on that level. But I'm definitely not sad to see it go just aesthetically. <laughs> yeah. No, I feel having, the same having way. never gained from it myself. It's, it's easy to, uh, <laughs> criticize, you know, everybody says that they paid very well. So I guess, you know, at least they were more consistent. I know some places don't pay. You know, I, I hope that or, they, I hope that they did. I mean, I've, I've heard through the grapevine that they paid really well. Maybe we should end the discussion with like, what did they gain out of it long-term? Let's speculate a little bit about like what, Club visibility, I would say, number one. Like, they're, you know, the branding in the club, seeing their logo Mm -hmm. lit up inside of a club. Like, people are going to order vodka and Red Bulls, like, for years to come. Okay. And that's, yeah, they've linked themselves with club culture. At least our sort of general sphere of, like, electronic dance music or whatever. They've gained that connection to that particular market. And so you think just... This doing that, just getting more long-term association with club culture. Yeah, I mean, if if that goal. was their goal, like they, you know, mission accomplished. Mm-hmm. It seems like how that'll play out ten years from now, like maybe Red Bull will not be around anymore. I don't know, but I I kind of suspect they'll be around, probably. If it was some kind of data collection thing on some level, what did they really gain out of that? I mean. How valuable is that data? Well, that's Yadastar's niche. Yadastar's mm-hmm. got that data. Yeah. So they're whatever. I mean, but at this point, that's like 10 year old data. You know what I mean? Like it's not that valuable anymore, I don't think. Yeah. I think if they'd, they'd have to keep doing it for it to be valuable. You're so, right. Yeah. They would. That's exactly right. The Should I See Red Bull Music Academy talk about it, I don't recognize most of the people they talk about. Yeah. Like it's way, it's new shit that's completely out of my realm of uh, of what I pay attention to. So they would have to do it on a continuous basis to for it to have actual value. Yeah. That's that's absolutely yeah, the, right. The, so, old, the old data doesn't matter so much. Like, yeah. So that's interesting to think about. For me, I just go back to the idea of the cultural impact is a valuable sense of branding. People remember it fondly for like experiences they had. Yeah, I mean, you can already see the, you know, the stuff you were... Yeah capturing on twitter it's like yeah like an immense outpouring of like yeah love and respect for this fucking uh-huh. like marketing apparatus of a giant soft drink corporation is it's quite odd to see but yeah um you know such is the era that we live in <laughs> so i hope you enjoyed that discussion with electronic musician michael buchanan about what red bull music academy meant to us uh, in the Oakland electronic music scene and just being part of the overall larger electronic music scene for the last 20 years. Um, and now I'm going to play for you an interview with writer, lecturer, musician, Matt Dryhurst, which has a pretty different flavor. He's going to do most of the talking. Um, he's the expert about this subject. He's been close to Red Bull Music Academy at times, and he has just an immense amount of knowledge about the way it interacts with the scene and just the the current music economy at large. So here's the interview with Matt Dryhurst. You have so many interesting things to say about this subject. I mean, you, you wrote uh, this great article in The Guardian like last week 
uh, April yeah. 19th. It's called Band Together, Why Musicians Must Strike a Collective Chord to Survive. I don't know if you picked that headline. I didn't, actually. Yeah, I, I figured you didn't. Else, but, but, <laughs> but it's cool. <laughs> but uh, it, it doesn't sound like quite your your style. But um, but no, the content of the article is is really good. And you talk about how big of a blow this 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 really was when it closed. So I guess just just go off on why did you decide to write this article? What what do you think about some of the things I've I've said so far and the article actually I, I wrote the article because they asked me to. Um and I think that you know I'd I'd presented a um a talk that I published the notes on called Protocols. Um, it was called Protocols, Duty, Despair, and Decentralization, or something like uh, cafe, highly caffeinated. <laughs> um, uh, at, at, at Club Transmediala, which is a festival here in Berlin, um, earlier this year. And I think it's one of those things that I get the impression it's done the rounds a lot amidst um, journalists and artists, less so kind of that next phase of like public, you know, uh-huh. um, in which. I mean, basically, trying to look at RBMA, it, I'm I'm really interested in this kind of core conflict that has existed, which is, you know, um, groups of people who adhere in many ways to this kind of indie DIY tradition, who, in a sense, uh, quite understandably, I mean, like, uh, uh, how would you put it? Like, intuitively, it feels like. Um, there there ought to be some resistance to the idea of private money coming in and helping to kind of provide stimulus funds to <clears throat> to that that music um and so in the the piece or the the talk i gave um i was just trying to pull apart why i don't necessarily necessarily see too much ideological distance between you know the great kind of pioneers of indie DIY culture, whether that be in electronic music with your kind of warp records or discord records or, you know, these kind of like paragons or scions of of that particular ideology. And then what, what has ended up happening, which is these kind of branded intermediaries that pretty much afford the artists involved the same freedoms as, as those labels. And Without taking a position myself, because my my position is a bit more complicated, um, I, I'm I'm just I'm, uh, I was interested in kind of in in pulling that apart and and figuring out if there is actually any clear ideological distance between the you know relatively kind of um, uh, individualistic capitalist modes of indie labels and um, you know, an organization like RBMA or Boiler Room coming in and again focusing on, you know, the 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 creative whims or funding or making making necessary or making possible the, the, the creative whims of of artists who could basically do what they want, you know. Um and the conclusion I came to in that I is a, a, a was that basically I don't see too much distance. And that I think that in many ways a lot of the responses against RBMA um, were kind of trying to keep alive some kind of a, a, a or inherit a, a tradition that, or, a, or inherit some kind of like a, a misunderstanding of what the principles of, of the DIY indie space were at their core, right? Um, 
which all is to say that, you know, I think, I think that piece kind of did the rounds and then the guardian asked me to write something a bit more general. Um, mm-hmm. and so in, in the guardian piece, because there's been other organizations that are shutting down, other intermediaries, like Drown in Sounds, One, there's this BBC show, The Light Junction, that has traditionally played a lot of experimental music. Um, and so that piece gets a little bit closer to how I actually think, which is my, my strong opinion on this, or the closest thing I have to a strong opinion on this, is that in looking back at the, the great indie legacy, one misunderstanding we have is to prioritize the independence part and in doing so we miss what i think was the actual thing that 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 is is a that that we stand to lose um which is the interdependence of it and i think that that's more than just kind of a linguistic or semantic gimmick um it is to say that i think that the original indies created this incredible kind of ecosystem social network whatever you want to call it to facilitate individual freedoms in artists um, and to give audiences access to to, to um, stuff that they hadn't heard or encountered before. But to prioritize the independence of that is missing the point. That it actually the incredible thing was the establishment of those networks and the the fact that in order for an individual to get ahead um, or to fully see their creative vision blossom, you need for that to be happening within a, a interdependent ecosystem of, of like-minded people. Um, yeah. And I think that also gets to, to it speaks a little bit to what you've noticed with people lamenting RBMA is that, you know, beyond us being able to have a kind of a real conversation about, um, the role of brand money or where that money came from or whatever, you know, that that's one conversation that's legitimate. Um, but I think the other side to it is that, you know, these kind of cultural institutions have been eroded to such an extent, I believe by the platform economy or platform capitalism, um, which has also kind of inherited this quite seamlessly inherited this kind of prophecy of everyone being this in independent special flower you know of course um, <laughs> and and in that erosion there's there's created a great demand for structure and i think that the one thing that rbma i'll give them a lot of credit in in doing this um did provide was for a bunch of people dotted around the world kind of a path you know and 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 you, i don't want to fetishize the successes because obviously there's people who went through their programs and whatever the are, are incredibly successful now and there's people who went through their programs that we'll never hear from again but there's something to be said for you know i was listening to like daniel eck of spotify was on the freakonomics podcast or whatever um and kind of pushing this like independent artist narrative and i think when when faced with the reality particularly for a lot of younger people now where it's kind of you and your files that you made on ableton and then the internet's out there like this kind of vast desert and you've got to go find water um, to, to be given a kind of almost like a path that, that involves some prestige and involves some expertise and involves uh, finding things that you wouldn't have found yourself. Um, and so the things that I will lament about the death of RBMA, just as I would lament it with the death of a label, is – the ability for 
people who we don't yet know to access that path and uh, and find, you know have have some some be 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 generously offered some kind of structure to their creative or political or whatever it might be ambitions and and I realize that that's fraught or or complicated with brand money being involved but ultimately my main concern is about some kind of a um, honoring uh, the the in as I would call it interdependent tradition of um, you know, creating networks that allow for interesting art and interesting perspectives, international perspectives, might I add, to flourish. Um, and mm-hmm. in the protocols talk, my closest thing to a conclusion I could come up with is I'm like, look, if you think that brand money is your biggest problem, particularly in the case of RBMA and Boiler Room, who have to the best of their ability demonstrated an interest in the legacy of um, of music that you or I might might care about then i personally think that the kind of anti-archive kind of platform populism of spotify is so much more deleterious to that tradition than the boiler room or or rbma approach um and 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 i might leave it at that because because i also i have i do have things negative things to say um but in terms of in terms of why, yeah, I, I think that covers a little bit why I think some people might be upset and uh, and and kind of why I'm interested in the topic, which is which is coming a little bit from a, an oblique angle to 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 most people, I think. Um, the debate or just the general um, discussions I've seen seem to surround the idea of uh, it's a tacky brand. It's an energy drink. And that's sort of yeah. when I was talking to Michael, which is going to be part of this podcast that we're discussing this on now, that was sort of, you know, our initial impression of it. You know, what was new and different about what its approach was as far mm-hmm. as a brand getting involved in a part of underground culture? And and sort of what does that mean for the future? Was this a valuable enough experiment? Would you even call it an experiment? It kind of seems like it was to me just based on their... You know, and I hate to use this as a metric, especially after what we're talking about with streaming platforms and the platform mm-hmm. economy. But based on YouTube metrics, mm. it doesn't seem like they were particularly that hugely successful with it. They made an imprint culturally, but financially, I kind of tend to agree with people that they didn't seem to get much back in terms of yeah. like profits out of it. What did it accomplish that was different? Like, what would you say is markedly different about this? Well, well, the one one thing I will say that there's usually a lot of confusion around with this is that, um, uh, and a lot of this again is, is is pure semantics. But but Red Bull Music Academy, to my knowledge, um, and and full disclosure, I actually know uh, the founders of it. Um, you know, we're not we're not like barbecuing every weekend, but I, I I teach a class at NYU and I've invited them in before and asked them difficult questions and they're and they're they answer them well. Um, I'll say that. Uh, but, but to my knowledge, you know, Red Bull Music Academy was started as an initiative 20 years ago by, um, a German company. Um, and the original idea was that, uh, they wanted to provide some kind of a, uh, an oral history, so to speak, of 
this music that they loved, right? And so initially it started out as a techno thing. I believe Jeff Mills was the first person on the on the RBMA couch twenty years ago, and the video is online, right? Really? Okay, um, I didn't. So I didn't realize that. Just interjecting really quick, I thought that they started with a more broad pop sort of music approach, and I didn't realize that they were doing techno at the very beginning. That's very interesting. Okay, Jeff Mills was the first person, and um, and and uh, you know, and take this for what it is, right? I'm, I'm just trying to be clear. Uh, uh, and so I think one source of confusion about it is that there's something called Red Bull music, <laughs> um, which is, you know, Red Bull who sponsor, you know, elite athletes and so on and so forth and do these huge publicity campaigns also have teams all around the world um, working on promotional campaigns for Iggy Azalea or whoever, you know? Got it, um, okay. And so... It, it, I'm, I'm sure I have, I don't know this for sure, but I'm sure that, you know, RBMA predates Red Bull music and Red Bull sports, as far as I know. I mean, it's been around for a really long time. Um, okay. And it's regrettable in the sense that the name sounds so familiar and that, of course, Red Bull's, you know, and, and Red Bull are, are, are you know, are, are canny, no doubt, right? Like over the last 20 years, they've turned into one of the major drink brands in the world. But I doubt that they were that big 20 years ago. Oh, yeah, definitely not. At least huh? not in the club scene for for, for sure. I mean, associated well, exactly. with the club culture. And, so, and-, and they also seem to have a, they have a knack of putting their name in front of things, right? Like there's a great debate in Germany. There's a, a soccer team called Red Bull Leipzig um, that they acquired, you know, and so they put Red Bull in front of everything, Um presumably as part as like part of their agreement and so 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 in terms of like clarifying the history of it um you know the um red bull yeah like uh torsten one of the founders used to edit groove magazine which which is still you know a a, a significant you know publication for for covering electronic music here in germany um yeah so, so in terms of like the, the, the origins of it, you know, it, it's a, it, it what, I, what I think was impressive about it in a sense, and I say this, uh, again, trying to be objective, but it's just like, I believe that RBMA in having that idea 20 years ago, presaged a greater shift that was to come, which is that, you know, uh, there was a lack of uh, content, for want of a better word, want of a better word, online. People all of a sudden wanted to engage with these artists who, at the time, were really quite marginal. Um, and uh, similarly, there was very little, if any, kind of academic credence given to um, those musics that has changed in the past 20 years to some extent. Um, is for example, like letting them come and do lectures, like a techno exactly. artist who's, you know, from 25 years ago coming to do a lecture to an audience of 250 people or whatever. Exactly. And so, and so all of that to me sounds like a good idea. And, 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 and I can only imagine that at the time, you know, it was even more of kind of a complicated decision for them to, to, to do so with the support of a brand. But I suspect that that company at the time, you know, we talk about Red Bull now as if it's like Coca-Cola or something, but but 20 odd years ago, I don't think that was the case. You know, I think absolutely that, not. No. And so, you know, and again, I, I, I won't speak for them or, or, um, but 
you kind of get, I mean, the impression I get a little bit is that this was something that like was done earnestly, has been done earnestly since, but at the same time was also, you know, in, in a way a victim of its success in, in so much as evidently they had this working relationship with this company that grew to be massive. Um, and their ambitions to take RBMA and the academies international, um, they must have negotiated with Red Bull proper, like Red Bull headquarters to collaborate with their staff that they have in God knows how many countries worldwide, you know? Yeah. And so in a sense to me, there's a very, um, you know, looking at it generous, generously, I, I think that there's a very, uh, logical kind of progression as to how it progressed. And in that time, and, and again, look, full disclosure. So, you know, I've performed at a couple of Red Bull events, Red Bull Music Academy events. Mm -hmm. um, and my reporting back from that is that I can say I can say that there is some credibility to the idea that they have never really compromised in what they wanted to represent because of their association with the brand, right? For sure, um, yeah. Now, of course, there are a bigger question about brand involvement in any of this culture is, you know, there's plenty of things that brands would not be into that maybe we never saw because, you know what I'm saying? Like, like I'm sure everything's a negotiation, but, but then again, everything is a negotiation in, in, in life. Just one example that came up with Michael's, we were talking about how electronic music can be amorphous. And, and generally speaking, there's not very much popular electronic music, even in the underground sense of popularity. That's like, jarring um and 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 actually like hurts your ears you know Absolutely. like so i guess I, when i think of like throbbing gristle or something there's there's things that aren't there's not as much of that happening and there's sort of more of a a shift towards a a specific type of you know industrial sound design i guess i should say um that's yeah. a little more safe so that's not red bull music academy's fault that's just sort of the you know the culture is shifting that way as well yeah no i mean you're right. And I mean, but, but I think that these things are in parallel, right? It's like, you know, I mean, I, I say this with my students in a way is, you know, and I, I think I say it in the protocols talk, it's like, you know, in the realms of traditionally challenging music, right? The stuff that, so for anyone listening, Robbie and I know each other from weird noise and electronic music circles in the Bay Area. Yeah. <laughs> um, so this, the, that kind of stuff that traditionally was quite marginalized, right? Um, because it is abrasive and, you know, it, it, it's, it's kind of always kind of pri prides itself as being almost like an antagonistic music. Um, I think there's, there's a greater question to be asked, which is, you know, by my reading, and this is what I say in, in the protocols talk, you know, the thing about platform capitalism that's really interesting and is somehow like a, a, a break from the past, let's say, is that there are so few aesthetic departures you could take um, that would be antagonistic to platform capitalism because at the end of the day, right, like I'll give the whole spiel, but basically like, you know, Google made maps of culture. Facebook makes makes maps of relationships and because they can read those maps that are changing every moment, right? Um, they uh, can establish trade routes, right? And that's why they have this ad model where, you know, Google knows how to uh, 
read the map so that you can find your listeners hypothetically um, uh, with ad dollars, right? Yeah. And, and that's kind of like the, the way that everyone decided the internet should work, sadly. Um, and so if, if you think about that model, right, like any new odd combination of interests helps them to expand their map, right? Yeah. And so these things that traditionally might have been quite marginalized because, you know, throbbing gristle or whatever, like a coil record. Yeah, yeah. Under the previous model of, of, of the entertainment industry, that was so marginal so as to not be all that interesting, right? I mean, there, there are a few things that bubbled up, right? Like grunge became a moment and all of a sudden yeah. people realized, oh, every teenager in the country might relate to this, so we're going to put some money into it. But under the old model of the entertainment industry, that stuff wasn't all that you know, this really challenging stuff wasn't all that compelling. The difference being now is that if you can identify even a small group of 20, 30,000 people globally who relate to something, irrespective of how abrasive the sounds are, um, that is potentially a new area of the map to sell people stuff under ad-driven platform capitalism. That's my thesis at least, right? So the bigger question which I think comes up and is useful to think about when we're asking these questions about like brand money and the tradition of abrasive music or whatever it might be. I think the, the bigger question is what gesture could you make that would be as antagonistic to platform capitalism as abrasive noise music was to the pop music industry, right? Um, and the thing is like going back to RBMA for a second, you know, one of the – the justifications or the kind of rationalizations I came up with thinking about RBMA was I was like, well, look, they foresaw a lot of this because RBMA and Boiler Room, and I don't think this was a, a, a I don't think this is a cynical move on their part. I think that, you know, culture just generally is kind of like a colander or like a sieve, you know, it's like cer certain things pass through and are allowed to succeed and other things are, are kind of stopped at the border, you know, like, um, so they succeeded most likely, I believe, because they are map makers, right? That that they, uh, their their whole thing was we're going to make maps of new, weird, interesting scenes. We're going to go to Uganda and we're going to go to Japan and, and Mexico and expand this map, right? Expand mm -hmm. this uh, this territory, um, which is a is a desirable utility uh, in in this economy. Um, and so, one could argue, you know, that that that, that some of the work that that RBMA has been doing. Um, has in fact uh, uh, put money into cultures that previously would never have seen that. I mean, a, a, a great example, you know, is is talking about you know artists from from Russia or uh, Ethiopia or you know these kind of people that previously would would never really have been part of this conversation. Um, RBMA for a long time has really prioritized that, you know, and they they've been dealing with. You know, the legalities of that, like paying for visas, all this kind of stuff that even the indies don't really do a great job of, you know. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, it's I, I can see why there's a there's a natural resistance to it. And I have my own reservations about certain aspects of it. But but I think the bigger question for me and, and part of the reason why I try and look at this protocol or like the first principles of like, what do we actually believe? Um, the bigger question for me is what could one do that would be antagonistic to to an ad-driven platform capitalist model? Um, because if that's the desired goal, then 
we shouldn't be making abrasive white noise music because that's also that's kind of in my mind more futile in 2019 than you know than kids making weird like uh, reggaeton music in in Bolivia or what you know it's like 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 I find that that's that's somehow more alien to me in in this in this uh, in this economy um, than uh, than a lot of the stuff that you and I I know uh, have grown up appreciating you know it, it's a, a so yeah so so, so I'll, I'll leave it at that but, but, yeah I guess one of the interesting aspects for me is just how much space and how much they touch the scene for better or worse I mean. We can we can have a whole other debate about if their impact was negative or positive, and it it almost kind of reminds me of like I hate to make a Star Trek analogy, but like the Prime Directive, you know, one of the Federation rules was to not interfere with the the cultures of other planets and just sort of like watch from a distance. Um, <laughs> but now that RBMA has sort of inserted itself and taken up this much space and done this much curation, some of it rather good. They really did touch the scene in a in a pretty strong way. So there seems to be a strong argument to be made that there is some st- real value in creating some kind of alternative, um, mm-hmm. uh, not just network or community, but just an alternative backup plan. And almost in the way that you know you shouldn't keep all of your videos and content on YouTube and depend on them mm-hmm. for you know the safekeeping of your you know your growth or whatever. Like you should have an alternative platform. So I, I I don't know I mean I don't know if that's a terrible analogy to make but no, no, what do you think? Uh, we we really strongly agree on that. I mean the the thing is I um you know I've been invested in in thinking about alternative possibilities for for many years now um, and it's a difficult problem and I, we we probably both have good ideas and bad ideas about what that might look like. Um, the thing about RBMA that I was trying to raise in my protocols talk um, is I think in some ways I was concerned that something like this would happen, um, particularly for, you know, for, for people listening. I mean, we're talking now about really, really marginal scenes. You know what I mean? Like the, what, what I would refer to as kind of the lifeblood of kind of, 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 uh, of, of a lot of kind of the, forward momentum in music you know it's like um it my major concern for a number of years now has been that you know you have these kind of brand into branded intermediaries who are artificially inflating the value of the music that i cherish um in in so much that they would be able to find the means to you know pay for weird artists to go play big concerts in Japan and, you know, uh, uh, you know, South America and you know, what, whatever it might be. Um, and in a sense, it's almost like where the platforms and just the general like dip in the economy that's occurred through the, the loss of record sales, which we could talk about forever. Right. Um, but that dip, it's almost like, just in time, some of these branded intermediaries stepped in so as to give the illusion that all is well. You know what I mean? Um, oh, no, that's a great, great point. And, yeah. 
my concern, obviously being professionally kind of involved in this since I was like 18 years old, right? Like I've been working in weird music for a really long time. Um, my real concern is that it's been really obvious to me um, for many years now that, you know, that this is an artificial inflation um, and that if you were to remove that support, it's going to start becoming really clear to people. And that's my fear now that this uh, uh, kind of these structures and institutions that used to somehow allow for challenging music to punch above its weight have been eroded. And, and so for me, when I, you know, I lament the death of RBMA because I think I honestly, I think, I think they're good people and I think they were doing a good service that was interesting. Right. Um, for all of the, for all of the, for all of the, the, the arguments we can have about it, I, I regret it on that level, but I lament it um, because I think there's going to be a huge reality check that's going to come. Um, yeah. Because that structure of, you know, you being the person in the weird scene somewhere and then you getting a bit of shine with the press, by the way, a lot of those press are, are dying. Um and then from that, the bookers notice you or the people at RBMA or Boiler Room notice you. Um, and now RBMA is not there anymore. And fingers crossed Boiler Room might be around for a few. Uh, you know, this is this is very precarious stuff. Um, my real concern is that there's nothing really there to pick up the slack anymore. And we're going to find ourselves, you know, or many people – I certainly won't be surprised by it, but many people are going to are going to come to a rude awakening and realize that, you know, wow, like this, uh, you know, and I think that this is, you know, the, the responsibility for that can be shouldered by many people. Um, for years, I've been attempting to to have a quite frank discussion about, um, you know, the, the the state of affairs in music and uh, and this kind of threat. Uh, posed, I believe, by by these kind of bull in a china shop kind of uh, uh, platforms. Um, but I think that I think there's going to be a, a pretty sober moment pretty soon, um, unless something else intervenes to pick up that slack. Because you know we can entertain um, uh, uh, cool ideas about alternative platforms or arrangements or whatever it might be, but I'm always really hesitant with people to say, look, like. When I think about those things, I'm thinking about like, you, you know, when, you know, when you're in a boat and then there's like a leak, it's like a classic thing from a movie and they're in a boat and they're stranded at sea and then there's a leak. And so they're like putting their fingers on all the holes, you know, oh. that's what I'm thinking about. I'm not thinking about like, oh, like if we were all the band together, then you'd, everyone would be able to, you know, contribute a bit and then you know, the weird noise artist all of a sudden out of nowhere has 20 grand to build a live show, right? Like, because that's what we've had for the last 10 years or whatever of RBMA and, and institutions like that picking up the slack so that the fan goes to the, goes to the show and is like, whoa, look at this crazy thing, you know? Like, that's not going to happen. Like, that's disappearing, right? Um, so... I mean, there's a number of things that I'm concerned about related to that fallout, but I think that it's going to be really sobering. And that's why I've been, you know, I've always tried to be very fair and not kind of like, 
not fall too, too hard on either side of this, but privately and oftentimes publicly, I've been trying to say to people, like, be careful, like, where, don't light a match in here, you know, because you might, you might not have enough information to understand quite what you're playing with. You know what I mean? Um, because I think that the implications of it are much broader than RBMA. I think the implications of it are, you know, will we have a, a structured mechanism for really challenging artists to gain a level of, uh, of visibility or prestige when these things go? And that is a very unresolved question for me right now, you know? Um, yeah. Sure. And, and I think that's a real, that's a, that's a civilizational concern. Not to, I mean, obviously music isn't, isn't uh, life or death, but, yeah. but I do think music is, a, is very important. And I think it's a big signal for where we are and what we represent. And, you know, yeah. And uh, as I say, I, I feel like, uh, yeah, it's, a uh, uh, it's, it's, it's it's not great right now, you know? <laughs> no, and I mean, I think just the fact that an organization like that did step in and have to pick up so much slack is definitely a symptom of a larger problem. I mean, if you want to see RBMA as a problem, then it's, it's you know, it is much broader than that. It's a, it's a symptom of something much worse. But I, I do want to get a little bit more specific about what, you know, RBMA just meant just for the people, and while I'm sure these people who were involved, some of them at the very top were serious fans of electronic music and stuff like that, I have no doubt of that. I'm curious about what benefit the corporate side got from it, and if it was like a, if it was an experiment in some regard, if it was a successful one, mm-hmm. and if it's a model that could be of any use to any future corporation or marketing agency in the future, because. Mm-hmm. Because I guess one of the things that came up with my discussion with Michael that I just never really thought of before is it's rare for any brand to have this sort of association with electronic music. Red Bull is definitely now sort of permanently associated with sort of almost like a golden age in this Mm -hmm. kind of music we're discussing. And there haven't been very many brands, especially, you know, soft drink brands that have managed Mm -hmm. to achieve such a thing. I'm just wondering mm-hmm. how much value they're really, you know, you have some knowledge about, about marketing and I'm just curious mm-hmm. from a marketing perspective, like what they, what did they gain out of this? Or even just, just from a brand, a brand perspective for decades to come, even though they've mm-hmm. shuttered the RBMA, what does this gain them possibly as a brand? Yeah, no, it's a good question. I mean, I think a few things, right? Like I think first off with, from a historical world, like view like I think there's something to be said for um, RBMA's involvement with Red Bull. And now I'm just this is I'm just ma- I'm making this up, right? But but it seems accurate accurate to me. <clears throat> there's something to be said for the fact that it's a 20 year relationship um, with a company that's not that old, right? So there's a degree of uh, I'd imagine loyalty there, it, as you said that in contrast to like working with a major athlete or something, you know, a, a, uh, an interview with, uh, on a tricks point never is, is probably not going to get the same amount of plays as a, as a, you know, a video with, uh, uh, LeBron James or whatever. You know? Um, so I think that there's probably like 
there was probably long-term goodwill there. Um, and and the other the other side is that RBMA, as 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 far as I know, was was kind of had this prestige and a sense of being kind of the gold standard. You know that it's it really became a bit of a a, a kind of a epoch shifting example of how to navigate a a brand relationship with a culture that <clears throat> uh, would rightly you know be resistant or skeptical to to brand relationships and so the the prestige value of 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 that of the, the, the kind of authenticity or credibility um, that comes from being able to you know I'm pretty sure that <clears throat> You know, for people at Red Bull, you know, it was probably one of the first slides on their decks when they're going to present with people. It's like, hey, look, we're, you know, we're cool. You know, I mean, yeah. the, um, they passed that, the bullshit or the, the smell test for most people in a, in a really profound way, actually. Yeah. And that's really exactly. valuable. Yeah, it, it is. And it's <clears throat> and it is equipped. It is a it is a, uh, as you say, it's a, um, you, you know, d- they they had to be getting something out of it, and that's that's one thing that they could get out of it. Also, to be seen as kind of pioneering in this new realm of kind of like authenticity or whatever with brand partnerships. I think twenty years ago that really wasn't a concept, and as I said, they, that the RBMA project was kind of like the the gold standard. The other thing I think too is is again goes back to this kind of cartographic idea um, of you know like if you if you have a project like that, like why would you want to remove yourself from these kind of emerging marginal markets? Right. Um, in terms of like, cause I don't think that, uh, RBMA was like collecting crazy data on people or whatever, but you and I both know that music on the margins gathers people who have influence far beyond their number. Right. Yeah. Like, which, I mean, I, I've argued this with, with other organizations in the past or like trying to raise money for weird music projects or whatever. I'm like, you do realize that like, if you go and, uh, if, if you're able to get a, the thousand people who care about weird techno involved in something, you're basically talking to all the future kind of, you know, lead developers. It's like a very well educated, super, you know, super smart, yeah um, class of people you know what i mean like uh and so there are also i think kind of feedback loops that come from courting uh those people that that are beneficial in the long run just in terms of like the general aura around an organization you know like um and so that problem might will go some way to explain how this partnership could exist for 20 years. I mean, the, the, the big question that I don't have the answer to, um, is, you know, why would that end? Um, and in not, no, let's, let's be clear. I, I don't value communities on the margins, um, by their, uh, their potential value to a sports drink or whatever, right? Like, like, like that's not, <laughs> that's not my criteria for value judgment here, but, there is something interesting uh, in the fallout of this to to think about, which is there's something eerie to me of being like, well, why all of a sudden is this not valuable? 
right? Um, exactly, yeah. I can only speculate on that, but I don't think because if if it was all about numbers, they could have made that call five years ago. It, you know what I'm saying? You would think, or, yeah. Or maybe, or maybe it's just it, it just over time the the lack of numbers kind of eroded stuff, and I don't know, someone retired, or you know what I mean? Like these things generally, like you know, it's my proclivity and, and undoubtedly also yours to to maybe overthink things sometimes, you know, and like the other kind of <laughs> the, the more the more chaotic world that we live in, like Occam's razor says maybe the account manager who's been championing this, you know, got another job. You know what I mean? Like yeah. it, it could be something that boring and then we we'd lose our brain like building an entire world model conspiracy about it, you know, and it, What did it they say? I mean, do you, I actually didn't even read their official press release. What did why did they say they were closing it down? They didn't. Um they just they just, you know, uh thanked everyone and and moved on. And you know, I if I knew more, I wouldn't say more to be honest out of out of uh, respect. Sure. Um, uh but uh, all is to say that I don't know of anything, uh, anything momentous to share. <laughs> yeah. If I were to share it, right? It, uh, and and I think I think it could just be quite banal because, yeah. Uh, but I do think that there 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 is a kind of a um um there is also in talking about this kind of rude awakening, you know, there is one takeaway from this and a, and a critique that I do lend credibility to. And you mentioned this before about, you know, being scared about losing your videos on YouTube or your music on SoundCloud is the, yeah, like a banal decision or a banal, you know, retirement or whatever could yeah. all of a sudden have this crazy destabilizing effect. And we hopefully ought to be a bit more resilient than that. Yeah, exactly. It it could just be something quite trivial, you know, and the the um, which is really yeah. eerie in and of yeah. itself. I think. I mean, that a whole thriving, like as you said, you know, arguably artificially inflated, you know, but valuable sector of of art and culture can just disappear overnight. I mean, yeah. I'm not saying that's it's literally going to disappear overnight, but that's going to leave a big, big open space there. Yeah, and and. It, and as I say, I think that the most eerie thing for me, you know, I, I remember, I can't remember if I tweeted this, or I was, I was joking with someone before where I was like, you know, in music, the real conspiracy theorists are the status quo, you know, that, that for the last decade, I've been sitting here, you know, professionally invested in this, like, if you think about the opportunity cost of like, what else I could have done in my life. I've put all my time into this. All my community is built around this. And over the last 10 years, I've seen so little um, conversation about that actually reflects where we are at in this economy, you know, um, which is part of the reason why I'm not like I'm not a writer, you know, like I, I hate writing. I honestly, it's it's not fun for me. I don't um, I don't plan to be a writer. You know what I mean? Like it's not. But uh but I end up contributing stuff every now and then because I'm just like, I'm like panicked by the lack of concern. And, and, and part of this is, yeah, this kind of the, the, the most eerie part is how, 
aspects of of music culture on the margins have kind of kept like the the fence painted you know like it's like nothing to see here you know like everything's cool like we're still putting our press releases out and everyone's reviewing records like they did 10 years ago and you know people are playing shows and it's all good and i'm like this is like this is artifice there's artificial inflation here and there's nothing behind it like this is in ruins you know um and the the narrative has not caught up to that i believe partly because of this external kind of stimulus that's come in from organizations like rbma and the really eerie part for me is the fallout like when people realize that those opportunities are not going to be there anymore necessarily you know like it's going to get messy ugly you know uh, um because as you say Bidley, or as i said the, the, people invest their lives into this i mean this is not like marginal music it, it, it might seem of marginal concern but if you are someone who you know you move to a major city in your 20s to like pursue this as a life path and you've put your time into it and all your 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 social network is invested in it and then all of a sudden you're like this is you know this is you know this is this is in ruins i mean that's that's a that has major consequences for people you know um and, and that's so again that's that's why part of the reason why you know when i try and talk about alternatives it's i, mean, I try and be very modest in 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 discussing that because i'm just like no at, at the most basic level we have to like fight to preserve this and Going back to the first point, I think that in order to preserve this, we need to have a bit of a memorandum on what this is, you know, um, because this this kind of independence narrative, whatever thing, like it doesn't cut it. That's not actually like the distinguishing characteristic of the things that I care about. You know what I mean? Yeah, but I mean, in the case of like specifically RBMA, how would the community itself lobby them to preserve something like that? Like, is that even possible? Like if, if it, if it really serves such an important role? Yeah, that's a good question. I mean, I, I don't know. I mean, I wouldn't be overly optimistic that anything like that would work. I mean, I think that like, you know, the, the people involved with it, you know, there's people losing their jobs. Um, you know, they they have no doubt far more of a clue than I do about how to uh, to salvage or continue something like this. Um, and I think that you know some kind of a, a a grassroots petition or whatever. I don't know how far that would go. I mean, I wouldn't. I'd, I'd sign it, you know. But I don't, but I don't yeah. know. Uh, uh, I don't really know how far that would go. I mean, I think that um, yeah, the the, the bigger. The, the big the big challenge about this in a sense is you know even to to gather the kind of uh to gather the kind of names or or people necessary who who are concerned with this would be a feat in and of itself you know i, I think that like you know through my tweeting belligerent things for a number of years there's, there's a number of people on my twitter feed that seem to have some kind of an appetite for <laughs> thinking about these things mm -hmm. um but but even in those efforts, you know, I'm not um, I'm not kind of a bullish on a <laughs> bullish on some kind of a, a an organic uh, uh, 
a, a project rise, rising uh, all, all too soon. Um, and 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 again, that, that that's part of the reason why I've started to look at first principles, and also in the last year, honestly, be be a bit more um, uh, kind of what's the word? Um, just just be a bit more direct um, in in what I'm trying to say, um, be, because I think that the the latency or or the the kind of disparity between what I see to be the severity of the problem and what I witness to be the response is is problematic. I, I, I don't think that people fully know uh, quite quite the state of affairs and I think that uh, um, that's that's dissatisfying to me. Um, and, and perhaps it's dissatisfying to me because I have unrealistic expectations or I'm outmoded. I'm in my thirties now. Maybe I'm just a, you know, I need to get with the times or whatever, but I, don't, I think it's bigger than that. I think, <clears throat> I think people just for whatever reason have been coddled and don't understand, um, don't understand how things actually are. Um, and they will, <laughs> I don't say with, I don't say with any satisfaction, they will, you know, <clears throat> So is there anything else you wanted to say about it that um that we didn't really touch on? Um no, I mean like I think yeah, watch this space. I, I have no doubt that the the core group of people involved with RBMA will do something else. I mean that's that's also encouraging. Um mm-hmm. I think that you know from from what I know of them, that's kind of what they do. They're they're doing people, you know, and and it was a significant thing to to accomplish. I mean, it's like it's like the the scale of the operations of that. I don't think that uh, you can go from that to zero. You know what I mean? Like like so so that, that's encouraging. But but I also think that uh, um, there's a lot more that can be done, um, you know, by people who are concerned about this stuff. Um, and and as I say, I I see that all in in kind of the chrysalis phase at the moment. I don't think that. You know, there's not like a, a thing you can sign up to tomorrow to save to save this corner of music. Um, totally. But, but yeah, I just I, I just like to. Uh, I think this is just another warning shot that, um, hopefully not the last warning shot. It certainly won't be the last warning shot. Um, that we, if we care about this stuff, we really need to start, start taking it it seriously now. It's kind of beyond, it's beyond the pale. Um, and. Uh, yeah, so I, I remain like very cautiously optimistic, and uh, uh, but uh, I just realized I don't sound very cautiously, very optimistic. But, <laughs> uh, <laughs> um, but yeah, and as I say, none of my points are, are in attempting to somehow like bootlick or, um, but but hopefully, uh, yeah, hopefully it's clear that that I think that um, you know these institutions and intermediaries that are attempting to kind of maintain a relationship with the archive and kind of resist in a way the, the Instagramification of culture, right. Um, are very valuable. And so I'd just be very cautious before trying to light a fire, um, uh, uh, under them, unless you know exactly what you're doing. You know what I mean? I, I think that, uh, we need to, we need to tread really carefully at the moment. Matt, tell us a little bit about the project that you're currently focusing on. Yeah, uh, yeah, we're um, we we have a record coming out May 10th um, called Proto 
on 4AD. Um, and yeah, it took a really long time to make. It's, uh, um, you know, an album of, of songs. Uh, we put together a band. It's like 10 people um, and played around with some machine learning stuff, which was really fun and, and strange sounding. And, um, you know, there's some big songs with 10 people singing on them, which was really fun to put together. And, uh, yeah, we'll be, we're going on tour. We're playing actually a Red Bull event in New York. Nice. <laughs> so as to discredit everything I just said, cause I'm a shill. Um, what is that? Um, it is good question. I think it's like May 17th or 16th, okay. um, in New York. And then after that, we're playing some shows. We're playing in Chicago, LA, and San Francisco um, later in May. All of these dates I don't know right now, but they're basically after that show, so later in May. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, and that, that's honestly that's kind of what we're focusing on at the moment is just you know trying to uh, trying to do do this record that we spent way too long making some some justice. You know go and perform it and show it to people and stuff. That's kind of the goal. Yeah. Miraculously. I don't know whether I should, I'm happy it hasn't leaked or I'm not happy. (laughs) I'm I'm actually really happy it hasn't leaked, but then the other side of me is like, why, why, why is no one leaking? (laughs) (laughs) Maybe the record label's got some good watermarking system down or something. They do. It's like Fort Knox. It's kind of crazy. Actually, uh, we, we don't have a mastered link to share with people. Um, Wow. Yeah, no, it's really, they're, they're really on top of it, which I really respect. Um, well, that's crazy. Well, thanks for coming on, Matt. And uh, it'd be great to have you on again in the future at some point. Yeah, whenever, whenever dude. I'm, I'm sorry it took so long. Uh, things are, uh, no things worries. are... You guys are busy as fuck we'll, right now. We'll, we'll, we'll chill, chill out a bit, but, but it's, it's nice to hear your voice and hope to see you in San Francisco. If you liked what you heard on this podcast today, please consider supporting us on Patreon at patreon.com slash Media Roots Radio. Thank you.